as the kids are making their way to their classes, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please open them to Revelation chapter 12. You may have already noticed that my voice is not awesome this morning. Um, Some dear friends gave me some tickets to the Tech football game yesterday, and you know, as a result of that, I've decided that college football really is just a, it's a distraction from God's kingdom, and (laughs) so brothers and sisters, lay down that idol, especially if you're wearing red. (laughs) Well, we're continuing our study of the book of Revelation. Last week, we started into chapter 12. We covered the first six verses where we saw two visions in heaven. John saw two visions in heaven. One was a woman who we said symbolized for us the people of God, the church today. She was radiant and she was beautiful. We saw that symbolized in the fact that she was clothed with the sun. We saw the fact that she was reigning and ruling in the fact that the moon was under her feet. She was depicted as royalty because she had a crown of 12 stars. But the most notable thing about that woman is that she was pregnant in this vision. She was about to give birth to a child, a male child as we're told, one who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. And we noted last week that that was symbolizing, of course, Jesus Christ the Messiah. The second sign that John saw was a great red dragon. And we see in the passage that we'll read today that that is Satan. And this dragon wants to devour the child when the child is born. He stands ready to destroy the child. And so we learn Satan's great goal. It is to destroy Christ to disrupt his redemptive mission and to kill his people, the church, to frustrate the church. But the dragon in the story was unsuccessful in his attempt to devour the child when the child was born because right after the child is born in this vision, the child is caught up to heaven, caught up to God and his throne. And so the vision went straight from the birth of Jesus to the ascension of Jesus. And the mother, who again represents the church, fled into the wilderness. The wilderness, again, representing a a place of suffering and trial. A place where evil lurks and looks for opportunity to cause pain, suffering, and loss. And so the woman flees into that place but while she's there we're told that there's a place prepared for her in that wilderness by God and that God nourishes her in the midst of that wilderness for 1260 days this morning we're going to cover the next six verses verses 7 through 12 as this war between God and Satan which is the content of chapter 12 
Now this war moves to its first battlefield, and we see this war in heaven. So let's read Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 7 and continuing through verse 12. Church, this is God's word. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for redeeming the church back to yourself through the sacrificial death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you so much for making a way for sinful rebels like myself and my brothers and sisters in this room who deserve eternal judgment because of our rebellion against you, that you have made a way for us to be reconciled back to you. Oh God, we thank you for your plan of redemption, and we thank you for executing your plan flawlessly through sending your Son, your one and only Son, to become one of us, to put on flesh, and to taste all that it means to be a man of flesh without sin but to also taste the death of flesh as he was put to death in our place. Lord, we thank you so much for that. And Father, thank you on my behalf and the behalf of my brothers and sisters in this room whom you have made that real to us in our lives. You have revealed to us the truth of this good news And you have worked a miracle of new life. You have breathed life into what was once dead. And you have given us the faith to trust in Christ as our only hope. By consequence of what? Of which we are forgiven. The debt that we owed has been canceled We have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus and we are awaiting 
a return to your very presence. Father, we thank you so much for that. We thank you for the picture that we see of that in this passage. God, we pray for those among us who have not yet come to faith in Christ. We pray, Lord, that that gospel truth would ring loud and clear to them, whoever they are, wherever they sit, that the folly of trying to make themselves good enough to be accepted by you, a holy and righteous God, would be seen for the folly that it is. That the precious grace of Jesus Christ would be laid before them and that you would give them the faith to trust in Christ and welcome them into your kingdom. Father, I pray that you would equip the church this morning, our church, this church, Lord. Equip us to persevere persevere through the suffering and trial and tribulation of our day and that which may come in the not too distant future. Cause us to persevere in this gospel faith and cause us to cling to you with gospel hope so that we might be found faithful when your son returns. We ask this in faith, in and through Jesus' name, amen. The passage that we are wrestling with this morning can be divided into two sections, each of which has three verses. Verses 7 through 9 is where war breaks out in heaven. And we, we see who the combatants are in this war and who wins and who loses. And then in the last three verses, verses 10 through 12, we hear this loud voice proclaim to us the implications of the war and what that means for us today. So let's unpack this text together. First of all, in verse 7, war breaks out. And we're, we're told that war breaks out between two groups, Michael and his angels on one side and this dragon that we read about in verses 1 through 6 and his angels on the other hand. Now, who are these? Michael, as we know, is one of the archangels. The word archangel literally just means chief angel. And we read about him in many places in the scriptures. In Daniel 10 and 12, he is the, he's the chief prince or the chief angel of the people of God. Daniel's visions re- refer to Michael as the angel who protects God's people and and fights the enemies of God's people. He, he literally goes to war with Israel, with God's chosen people, and fights in those battles for them. In Jude, verse 9, he is described as the archangel who contends with the devil for Moses' body. He contends with the devil, and that's Much the same of what he's doing here in Revelation chapter 12. He's described as one who has angels assigned to him. And so he has some some level of seniority in the hierarchy of angels in heaven. And he has some who are assigned to him. And those with whom, who have been assigned to him, with them he wars against, he fights against 
the dragon. The dragon, as we noted last week, is Satan. And we're told that he also has angels. So he's an angel himself. Uh, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he, he masquerades as an angel of light. And he has angels that are also assigned to him, like Michael. And we're told that they fight back. Literally, they, they war back. Michael and his angels war against them, and Satan and his angels war back. But we're told very quickly in verse 8 that he is defeated. Now, a couple of things for us to note very quickly about this war. First of all, it, it seems as though it's not much of a fight, doesn't it? Because it's, it seems to be over before it even starts. And so this teaches us that we should reject, outright reject, any notion that God and Satan are on equal footing. As if they are both equally powerful and that some kind of dualism is at play here where it's good versus evil and we don't know which one will win out. Friends, this is not Star Wars. If it was, Michael and his angels would represent the Jedi and the light side of the force and the dragon or Satan and his angels, his demons would represent the Sith and the dark side of the force and it would be an epic battle that is waged that would take at least six movies before we found out who won in the end but notice here that it doesn't take six movies it takes four words at the beginning of verse 8 but he was defeated the dragon and his angels Fought back, but he was defeated. I mean, there's, just, there's, there's no contest here. God and Satan are not on equal footing. God is creator. Satan is created. God, as we know, is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. Satan is categorically not in fact, God is so powerful that the vision here depicts that he doesn't even lift a finger. He just assigns it to one of his archangels, Michael. And even then, it's no contest, right? Satan is not omnipotent. He is not omnipresent. He is not sovereign. Only God is sovereign. And in fact... Satan is under God's sovereignty. Satan is on a leash, if you will. He can't do anything that God won't allow him to do. Just as we see in Job. Job, uh, Satan has to request permission to bring suffering into Job, Job's life. Satan requests that he might sift Peter like wheat. He has to get permission. And so he is under God's sovereignty. He is subservient to God. He is under his sovereign restrictions that God places on him. And so in this war here, it's not much of a fight. It's not much of a fight at all. But the second thing that we notice about this war, and this is really, really good news for us, 
is that after Satan is defeated, we're told that there is no longer any room for him in heaven. That is such good news for us. There is no room for sin or evil or rebellion in heaven. There is no room for the the depravity of man. All that man does to intentionally cause harm and suffering, hatred, racism, abuse, injustice, lying, stealing, murdering, unkindness, cheating, none of this is in heaven. There is no room for it in heaven. No room for any of that ugliness. Imagine a world without any of that, but with Jesus. That's heaven. Without any of that stuff that we suffer with and that we engage in in this world. So Satan is defeated in this war. And then he's thrown down. Look at verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. The war is over. God wins, Satan loses. And then he's thrown down to the earth. Now, this gives rise to a number of different questions. Probably most notably, when exactly does all this stuff happen? When is Satan defeated? How is Satan defeated? And and when is he thrown down to the earth? And what difference does that make to us who live on the earth today? And seeking to answer some of these when questions, we should should be reminded that this is a, a, a vision that John is receiving here, but it's an apocalyptic vision. Remember the word apocalyptic doesn't necessarily mean our connotation today For apocalypse is the end, but the word apocalypse simply means unveiling. So this is an unveiling vision. This is not straight up literal prophecy. It is prophecy, but it's apocalyptic prophecy, which means that we can't necessarily read like we did in verses 1 1 through 6 last week and see that the Messiah is caught up to heaven, he's ascended to heaven, And then in the next verse, verse 7, see that the setting of the vision is now changed to heaven and that there's this war that takes place and then conclude that the war in heaven took place after the ascension of Jesus. We we can't do that. Uh, We've seen a number of times already in the book of Revelation that we simply can't rely on a strict chronological interpretation because of the kind of literature this is. So when does this war happen? Well, in order to come to any kind of understanding of that, we need to understand a little bit more about the timeline of Satan's existence. So I want to give these to you. I know I don't have a PowerPoint for you this morning, but that's okay. We still preached before they invented computers, so it's all right. I want to give you nine markers on the timeline of Satan's existence to help us understand when and where this stuff happens. First, there's a beginning to Satan. He was created. He was created by God. And we're told in Ezekiel 28 that he was given 
the responsibility of being a guardian cherubim in the garden. Now we know that this took place somewhere before Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, Satan takes the form of a serpent. And he deceives Adam and Eve. And so he's already there in the garden. He's already been created at that point. And so Satan is created by God sometime during or, or perhaps before the creation account itself in Genesis 1 and 2. And by the way, just parenthetically here, if you're troubled by the fact that God created Satan knowing what Satan would become and what Satan would do, if you're troubled by that, I would love to spend some time with you talking more about that. But let me nutshell it for you. When God created Satan, he was not ignorant of what Satan would become and what Satan would do. Neither was he powerless to prevent Satan from doing those things. God created Satan knowing full well what he would do and who he would become. Which means that he had a purpose in doing so. God doesn't do anything without a purpose behind it. And we know from Scripture that everything that God does, He does to bring Himself glory. That's what it means to be God, to be first, to be above all else. So all that God does, He does for His glory. And so somehow, the existence of Satan and his eventual destruction and the means by which he is ultimately destroyed and tossed into the lake of fire, brings God glory, glorifies God. Again, if you want to talk more about that, I would be happy to walk with you through the problem of evil and the existence of Satan under the sovereignty of God. The doctrine of God's sovereignty over everything, including the existence of Satan, is a difficult doctrine to come to grips with. But when one comes to grip with that doctrine, it nourishes the soul. And it draws our affections to God, to want to see him glorified with our own lives in this way. But that's the first part of the timeline. God creates Satan. And then, as we know, Satan rebels against God. Satan rebels against God. The, the guardian cherub of Ezekiel 28 grows dissatisfied and discontent with his level of authority that's been assigned to him. He wants more. And so he, he leads a rebellion in heaven because he wants to be more like God. And so he leads a rebellion against God. And the result of that is that the third marker, he is cast out of heaven to earth. Listen to how Isaiah describes this in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 17. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. 
How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars or the angels of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? Now, in the context of what was going on historically in Isaiah's day, this applied to the king of Babylon. This is written in that context about the king of Babylon. But we know that it also applies to Satan. Because in Luke's gospel account, Jesus alludes to this very passage and says that he saw Satan falling, descending like lightning from heaven. And so Jesus himself alludes to this passage and says that it actually finds its ultimate fulfillment in Satan being cast down out of heaven to earth. Now, this rebellion that Satan engages in and by consequence of which he is cast out of heaven to earth may be what Revelation 12 verse 4 was all about last week where where we read that the dragon, when he swept his tail, uh, caused a third of the stars or the angels to be swept out of heaven down to earth. When we read that, we said that was one of the possible interpretations of that passage. But regardless, uh, Satan rebels and both he and his angels, his demons, are cast down to earth. Now, providentially under the sovereignty of God, now that he's cast down to earth, this enables him to then have an attempt at accomplishing his goal, which is to destroy Messiah and to disrupt his redemptive mission and so the fourth marker on this timeline is that satan now attacks jesus and we mentioned this last week we see this all through jesus life we see it when he's a toddler and king herod has all of the children two years old and younger killed in bethlehem in that whole region satan was attacking we see it in the temptation of jesus as the the devil leads jesus into the wilderness and tempts him to essentially give up his mission. And we see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see it with Pontius Pilate. And we see it certainly at the cross. He attacks Jesus. But he is unsuccessful. And so the fifth marker is that Satan is defeated. And where is he defeated? He is defeated at Calvary. It is at Calvary where Satan is dealt his mortal blow. But since he is unsuccessful in stopping Jesus, he thought he had stopped Jesus when he killed him, but Jesus rose from the dead. And so because he was unsuccessful at stopping Jesus from his redemptive mission, he now directs his focus at who? Us. He directs his focus at the bride of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ. 
And so sixth marker, Satan is now a God. And we see this figuratively played out in this vision through the woman and the offspring from the woman, as we'll see the next time. But Satan is now attacking the church. And these attacks that are happening right now in the church age will continue. And my reading of Revelation tells me that they will grow worse and worse and worse the nearer we get to the very end. But then one day, the glorious appearing of Christ will appear. Jesus will descend on a cloud with a trumpet call, and he will return, and he will reign on earth. And when he does, according to my reading of Revelation, three more things will happen with respect to Satan. First, he'll be bound and thrown into the abyss for a thousand years, whatever length of time that ends up being literally. And then, number eight, after that time, he will be released for a short time, during which he will launch a last-ditch effort to try to destroy the Messiah and his bride. And that last-ditch effort will fail. And then ninth, after that failure, Satan will be ultimately destroyed and tossed into the lake of fire. So there's lots that are going on there. And there's lots of seemingly battles against Satan where he's destroyed but not, not fully and destroyed again and not fully. So where does this war of Revelation 12 take place? This war that's described as the archangel Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon or Satan and his angels. Where does this take place on this timeline? Well, some see this war occurring when Satan is cast out of heaven, uh, that it's part of the original creation story, that this is part of his rebellion where then he is cast out of earth or out of heaven. It's part of the rebellion, uh, the original rebellion of Satan, even before the creation of man. And that's a possible understanding of this text. Others uh, see here uh, a reference to a final battle, the last battle, Armageddon. But I think that's unlikely because the scripture tells us that after that last battle, after that final insurrection of Satan, that he will be thrown not to the earth, but he will be thrown into the lake of fire to be destroyed completely and forever. And so most Bible scholars today see this war as being kind of the spiritual counterpart, if you will, of the war that Jesus won down here on earth when he died on the cross for the sins of mankind. As we're told later in verse 11, the enemy is conquered, how? By the blood of the lamb. By the blood of the lamb. It's at the cross where Satan was dwelt his mortal blow. But what's so much more important than knowing and pinpointing exactly when this happens on the timeline is knowing that it happens and, and, and understanding the results of this war and what it means for us today. And the result of this war is that Satan is a defeated foe. That's what it means for us today. 
He is a defeated foe. And this is what the loud voice announces now in, in verses 10 through 12. In verse 10, this loud voice announces, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For, and that word means because, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. In other words, one of the results of Satan having been thrown down from heaven to earth is that the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. Past tense, it's happened. But the kingdom is still in heaven, isn't it? It's not here on earth. It's inaugurated here. It's an already not yet thing. But verse 10 doesn't seem to be describing an inaugurated kingdom. It doesn't seem to be describing something that's already but not yet fully. The kingdom and the power and the authority, the, 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 the kingdom of God has come. And the authority of Christ has come. He's reigning. But the kingdom is still in heaven. It's not on earth yet. It will be, but not yet. Jesus hasn't returned yet. He's not reigning here yet. He will be, but not yet. And so how can this loud voice speak of these things as if they have occurred if they haven't yet occurred? Here's the answer. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord, dealt Satan such a mortal wound that he will never recover. He is defeated, and it's only a matter of time. His doom is sure, though he still engages in battle and fighting today. It's kind of like the Battle of the Bulge. Back in World War II, in the late fall of 1944, the Allied powers had Germany on the run. They had been completely ousted from North Africa. They had been defeated and pushed out of France after the invasion of Normandy earlier that summer. And so it was just a matter of time. The defeat of Germany was a sure thing. All that was left was to drive them into Berlin and see the death of the Fuhrer Adolf Hitler and the war would be over. Germany's fate was set. It was just a matter of time. But in December of that year, in the Ardennes forest of Belgium and northeast France, Germany stopped retreating and they dug in. And they waged this final battle known as the Battle of the Bulge. It turned out to be one of the bloodiest battles of World War II. But even after a month of the bloodiest fighting that the war had known, it didn't change anything. Nothing changed about the outcome. And four months later, Allied troops and tanks rolled into Berlin. Hitler was dead and the war was over. And so even though Satan battles against the church today, 
And even though he will wage one final battle against us one day, yet this loud voice here in this vision can pronounce, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God has come and the authority of his Christ has come. It's come. Though the kingdom is not yet here, we can celebrate that it has come because the victory was won at Calvary. And though Jesus has not yet returned and he's not yet reigning here, we know that he will because he defeated the enemy when he died on the cross and rose three days later. And this is what that loud voice exhorts us to rejoice about in verse 12. We also learn from here in, from verse 10 that Satan is the accuser of the brothers. That's what he does. He accuses the brothers. In verse 9, we were told that he deceives the whole world. Jesus said in John chapter 8 that there is no truth in him, no truth in Satan. He says when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies, Jesus says. And that's what his accusations are. They're lies. And, and, and to whom does he level these accusations? We're told to the brothers, the believers, those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we're told that Satan, our enemy, levels these accusations at believers Day and night, over and over and over again. What do these accusations sound like? Well, they sound like you're too sinful to be forgiven. You've gone too far. You can't be forgiven. God doesn't love you. There's nothing that can be done. It's hopeless. Jesus isn't Messiah his sacrifice isn't enough to pay for your sins. Or the lie is, you're not that bad. There are lots of people that are worse. God's going to grade on a curve and you'll be just fine. Just keep working at it. Keep going to church. Keep trying to be good. Keep pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Keep fighting against evil. Because as long as you do enough good and stop doing so much bad, you'll be right with him. And these are lies from the pit of hell. They are, they are lies, church, to keep us from experiencing the joy and delight and the hope and the grace that are only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these accusations, as I read Revelation, will get worse and worse and worse as we get to the end. So how are we to overcome? Well, the same way they did. Look at verse 11. The voice tells John that they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their own lives even unto death. Who is they? They conquered Satan by... The blood of the lamb and by the word of their... Who is there here? Who is they? I think in a specific, narrow sense, 
It's referring to those martyrs back in chapter 6 that we read about in the opening of the fifth seal judgment. Those martyrs whose souls were underneath the throne in heaven who were crying out to God, Oh Lord, how long before you avenge our blood? They are our brothers and sisters who have been killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Both the martyrs of the past, the martyrs of today, and the martyrs of the future. They have conquered this enemy by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, staying true to the very end. And they love not their own lives even unto death. And what a joy to know that their cry for vengeance will one day be answered when their enemy and ours is finally destroyed forever. But I think in a more general sense, verse 11 also refers to all of us who call on Jesus Christ as Lord, who trust in his finished work on the cross and his subsequent resurrection as our only and sufficient hope to be rescued from what we deserve because of our rebellion against God. It refers to all of us. How will we conquer? How will we overcome in this life and the next? Remember, conquering and overcoming was one of the themes of the letters that Jesus had John dictate to the churches in Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3. He said over and over to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers. And now we're told how they can conquer and overcome and how we can conquer and overcome. How? By the blood of the Lamb. Because of Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. By trusting in that as our only hope for rescue in this life and the next. By the word of their testimony, holding truth to the testimony of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and loving not our own lives, even if it means death, enduring persecution, enduring suffering, no matter how hard it gets, that we remain true to this, even if it means we give our very lives to it. That's how we conquer. That's how we overcome. And that's how Jesus wins. That's how Satan was defeated. His defeat was promised in the garden. You recall after Adam and Eve sinned against God, rebelled against God, God comes to the garden and he pronounces curses on the woman and on the man, but he also pronounces a curse on the serpent. And he says, in essence, There is coming one from the seed of the woman who's going to crush your head. Oh, you're going to bite his heel. You're going to strike at his heel. And you're going to try to stop him. But you won't. He will crush your head. It was promised in the garden. And it was fulfilled at Calvary. Listen to the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2 verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, 
He himself likewise partook of the same things. He too took on flesh. He took on flesh and blood for us. That through death, which is one of the results of taking on man's flesh and blood, becoming man, he would experience death. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Satan was disarmed at Calvary, as we read in the the passage from Colossians 2 earlier in our worship. Listen to Colossians 2, the latter part of that passage, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. By the way, that's all of us. You who were dead, not physically, but spiritually, you were dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ. God breathed new life into you. The Valley of Dry dry Bones, Ezekiel 36, 37. God breathed life into your dead soul that was dead because of your sins and trespasses. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. By canceling, how did he do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. We each had a record of debt because of our sin, because of our rebellion. And and, and that record of debt stood against us as a testimony against us. And it had legal demands. And its legal demands, its right demands, was our eternal judgment. And that record of debt was canceled. And Paul goes on to say, this, this record of debt, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then listen to verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's not talking about presidents and kings. He's talking about Satan and the demonic forces that are at play. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In him. He says he disarmed the rulers and authorities. So, so I ask you, what is, that, what is that weapon that Satan had that he had to be disarmed of through Jesus' death on the cross and subsequent resurrection? What, what was that weapon that was taken from him? His accusations of us. His accusation of the church. That we are guilty and that we cannot be saved through Jesus' blood and that we will perish for our sins. Satan was disarmed of that weapon. And now that he is disarmed, no accusation can stand against us. This is what Paul says at the end of Romans, that no accusation can stand against us. What shall, what shall, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn, who is to to accuse. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, because of Jesus' substitutionary death and resurrection, now no accusation can stand against us and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Paul ends Romans 8 this way. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, because they love not their own lives even unto death. And all these things now, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, those are the bad angels, the bad rulers, Satan and his demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Such good news for those who have trusted in Christ for rescue. Have you? Have you trusted in Christ for rescue? If so, this is such good news. If you have not, it's not. That guilt still lays on you, and you can't remove it. The only way it can be removed is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so I call on you to trust in Christ as your only hope. Come to faith in Jesus. So what is our response to this good news? Verse 12. A loud voice in John's vision concludes by saying in verse 12, Therefore... Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So heavens, those who dwell in them, rejoice. Why? Because Satan has been defeated by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony. But woe to you, O earth and sea. Woe means suffering's coming on you. Bad times are coming. Judgment is coming. Tribulation is coming for you. Woe to you, earth and sea. Why? For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He knows that his time is short. Like the Germans in the Ardennes, they know they're defeated. Their back is up against a wall. And so they launch a last-ditch effort to inflict as much pain and suffering as they can before they are ultimately wiped out. So here's our main takeaway from this passage. Satan is a defeated foe. He's been conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. He is a conquered foe, conquered by the gospel, conquered by the cross, whose eternal destruction is a sure thing. It's just a matter of time. His doom is sure. But he still wages battle today. And so our response is twofold. We are to rejoice, as it says, we are to rejoice that he is a defeated foe, that he has been cast down, and that his days are numbered. But we are also to be ready to engage in battle, because he certainly is. 
He is a defeated foe. He's a foe. Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And we could add from today's passage, and to accuse, and to lie, and to deceive. He is most definitely a foe. And so Peter warns us in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so we are to be wary of the devil's schemes and know how to, as James says, resist him so that he will flee from us. And next week when we look at the, or the week after, uh, I'll be gone next week, but the week after next, as we look at the closing verses of chapter 12 and the battlefield moves from heaven to earth, we're going to talk more about how we engage in that battle and what that means for us in our own days and in our own lives. But for now, we're told rejoice. Rejoice in Satan's defeat and be ready to engage in that battle. Be watchful, be wary, be knowledgeable of his schemes and be ready to resist him because although he is a defeated foe, he's still fighting and he's still battling. And so, so should we. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this book. We thank you for it in faith that we can trust that it is your very breath, that it gives life, it reveals to us who you are and who our enemy is. And we are so thankful, Lord, that the war is won. The battle's still being waged around us. And we feel it. Some of us in this room are feeling it acutely in our lives right now. We are so thankful, Lord, that we have only to open your word and see that the enemy that we fight against today is already lost. His doom is sure. Jesus won at Calvary. And you just have us engaging in this battle, living for your glory and extending your gospel to the nations until you take us home. And so, Father, may this glorious truth and this glorious reminder serve to equip the body of Christ, New Branch, to persevere no matter how bad it gets in this life so that we'd be found faithful to live as ambassadors of you in this strange land and to see you glorified through our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.